As you saw the video uh, intro here uh, today for a, a few weeks, I want to talk with you on this whole matter of what it means to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and in particular, uh, within the family of God, the local body. You know, Revelations 21 and verse 4 says that uh, when we come into the kingdom of God in heaven, that uh, he will wipe away our tears. Now, we know there are no tears in heaven, but there are when we get there, aren't there? Because he has to wipe them away. And we don't know what those tears are about. Uh, some have said, well, maybe we're seeing loved ones who didn't make it or people that didn't make it in. And so maybe there are tears of remorse or grief for that. And I guess that's possible. Um, but it's also possible, and I think it just might be when we get there, number one, they may be tears of joy, but they also will be tears of, I think, recognition of how much more we could have done for our King and our Savior. I think we'll realize at that point, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you that I'm in the kingdom, but Lord, now I realize I could have done so much more for you if I'd have just understood my responsibilities a little bit better. And uh, we're called to serve the King through the local church. We're called to be servants of His in this place, in this body. This uh, uh, past few weeks, I've had a couple of conversations with some uh, restaurant managers. In fact, everyone I've been able to talk to, I've been asking the same question, and, and uh, they've been giving me the same reply. And I, saw, I forward, uh, forged a uh, relationship with uh, several of these in our area, and uh, they keep telling me the same thing. They say, we can't open our dining halls right now. We can't open our dining halls. And it might surprise you, but the reason they can't open them has nothing to do with them not being clean. They can't get enough people to work. They can't get enough people to serve. And one of them told me, he said, my problem is that the government is paying them more to not work than I can pay them to work. And so I can't get them to show up. I can't get them to serve. Well, you know, um, sometimes the church has that same problem, that the church needs workers and servants, but sometimes we can't get them. I, I don't know what the numbers are now. We haven't crunched them in a while, but, but um, there was one point in time prior to COVID where for us to do everything on this campus on a Sunday that we needed to do and do it effectively, we needed more than 700 volunteers. And uh, you can imagine that. Our congregation is more than 4,600. Of course, we can't find a couple thousand of those with a radar gun. But they come in shifts. They come in shifts is what they do. But you can imagine, you need a lot of help. You know, I told my wife recently, I said, uh, as things are coming back, I said, I feel like I did when we were part of starting a church in Florida, I said, I feel that same way. I feel like we're just about starting over. We're having to re-enlist and re-involve and re-engage the people. And thus our emphasis on re-ignite. And um, Francis Chan, a, a popular uh, contemporary pastor and uh, author, uh, made an interesting statement of which I fully agree. He said, most of us use the, the uh, idea that I'm waiting for God to reveal his calling on my life uh, and we use that he says as a means to actually avoid serving God and then he goes on to say did you hear God calling you uh, to sit in front of the television yesterday or did you hear God calling you to go on your last vacation or to exercise in the morning 
Probably not, but you still did it. The point isn't that vacations or exercise are wrong, he writes, but instead that we are quick to rationalize our entertainment and priorities while we are slow to commit to serving God. I really think it's true. And so today we're beginning this emphasis for the next several weeks called Connect and Serve. And you'll see it on your worship folder. You'll see it in inserts. You'll be hearing it on our media. And we've even prepared some kiosks. You'll see them in the Welcome Center area in particular, down a couple of halls out in this main foyer. And they're really a catalog of service. And these look a lot like your worship folder. They're a little smaller, but they're in the stands with the, uh, uh, the little uh, kiosk stands. And I would urge you, if you're not connected, or maybe if you are connected in service in some way, to pick one up because it tells you the variety of different ministries. This isn't all of them. And you can, if you're technologically savvy, there's a QR code on that kiosk. You can just scan it with your phone. It'll take you right to a page on our website where you can talk about, here's something I'd be interested in serving an area of ministry. Or the code's in here. You can do it that way. But I would urge you to begin now as we reignite our ministries and are moving back uh, uh, in a, a forward direction that you say, I can serve and I need, don't do this in fact, let me give you a lie out of hell. I firmly believe a lie out of hell is I've done my time. I've done my time. I've done it. Let somebody else step up. I want to tell you, you're still alive. You're not finished. All right? And so I would urge you uh, to say, God, how can I serve? Where can I serve? There's so many different places. We had a man and wife join this church a couple of years ago, and he came to me. He said, Pastor, and he was a very successful businessman, and he said, I just want you to know something. I'm willing to serve however you need me. And he said, if you need me to come up here during the week and clean toilets in the bathrooms, I will do that for the Lord Jesus and for this church. I said, I think we've got those covered right now. But I said, I won't forget that, I promise you. And I said, thank you, but thank you for the humbleness of saying whatever I'm needed for in the kingdom, I'm willing to do. And so we begin this emphasis. And again, you'll see the information. You're going to hear this uh, a lot for the next uh, several weeks. Now, there are many ways to serve God. And uh, for example, just this, this past week, we had a family from our church who left for the mission field. Now, we knew they were going. They left this past week for the mission field. I can't tell you where. It's a highly uh, uh, secure area, and so I can't tell you who or where, but we have a family that just left this week for the mission field. That, uh, uh, the mission field. Now, that is service for God, but even upon their arriving at their mission station, listen, you know what they'll do? They will connect with a local church, and they will base and operate out of a local congregation. You see, our service to God almost always has a connection with the local family of believers. In fact, I love what the psalmist said, Psalm 84.10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Have you ever read that verse? For one day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. But here's the part I like. He, he goes on, this psalmist goes on to say, and we think it was probably David, but he goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of, of, wicked, of the wicked. Isn't that great? He said, man, one day in the courts of God, one day in the temple, one day is better than a thousand days anywhere else. And he said, I would, I'd rather just be a doorkeeper in the house of God. By the way, we have doorkeepers. 
uh, in the house of the Lord here. Do you get what he was saying? He elevates both the house of God and the opportunity to serve in God's house. And he found that he could be fulfilled just being a doorkeeper. If that's all he got to do, it would be fulfilling. So let me begin. Before we read our text, I want to give you four reasons that we serve in the house of God. Four reasons. I'm going to give these to you relatively quick. Number one, we we do that because the house of God is a place where we gather with the people of God. If you didn't hear my message last week, let me urge you to go back and listen to that because we talked about the importance of our gathering. And gathering uh, with the people of God stirs us up, it inspires us, and it unifies us in the common purposes uh, of God. We talked a little bit about that stirring last week, and we'll talk about it more. It's in our passage today. The second reason that we serve God in the house of God is because the house of God is the place where we give ourselves to the work of God. We give ourselves to the work of God in the house of God. That is, we put our gifts together. I'll be talking more about that this month. We put our gifts together, and the sum of our giftedness, you see, is greater than its individual value. In other words, you're more effective when you partner with others than just by yourself. We can do more together than we could ever do uh, 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 on our own. And so the house of God is the place where we give ourselves to the work of God. The third reason that we serve in the house of God is because it is the place where we grow in our knowledge of God. It's the place where we grow in our knowledge of God. The work of God in the house of God provides greater opportunity for you and for me to focus on God and to grow in our relationship with Him. I hope when you come into this place every week, you are growing. If you tune into this by live stream, I hope that you're, you're growing in the Word of God, but most particularly in a knowledge of God. And listen to this. When you give of yourself and, and you serve in the house of God, you are going to grow spiritually. And then fourth, we serve in the house of God because it is the place where we glorify God in worship. We serve here because we're serving in the place where we can gather collectively and praise and honor and glorify His name. And so that's why the psalmist would even say, uh, you know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house. Why? Because the presence of God is there. So I want to be there and I want to be doing something there that will bring glory to Him because there's going to be worship there. I want to be involved in that whole process of the house of God and the glory of God. You know what we prayed this this morning? We prayed just about every week in staff. We prayed that when you got out of your cars today, when you got out of your cars, not when you got in the building, but when you got out of your cars, you said the presence of God is on this campus. The Spirit of God is on this place. Why? And Because we believe that where the presence of God is, there's a lot of things. There's truth. There's enlightenment. There's worship. And we want you to be in on it. And then you take that to another level when you say, God, here am I, send me. You remember those words by Isaiah the prophet? He said, Lord, he said, I'm, a, I, I'm an unclean man. And he said, I live among people uh, uh, that are unclean. But, but he said, I heard you say, who will go? Who will serve? And I said, here am I, send me. You know what he was saying? Here am I. I'll serve. I'll step up. And the Bible calls us to do that. Not one person, when they get into the kingdom of God in heaven, is going to be sorry for any service they rendered to God. Amen? 
Nobody's going to say, I shouldn't have given that much time to the kingdom of God. No, they're going to say, God, I could have given so much more. So the passage that we're going to look at uh, is all about restoring the house of God to its place of prominence and for the people of God to resume their service in the house of God. You know, I have to tell you this. I think think today in the culture we're living in, the house of God has lost its prominence. I think it's looked at so often as just a thing we do when we don't have to do other things or we don't. uh, uh, Now, look, I I think for many, there is still great devotion. And I thank God for our church because I think there's still a a reverence for God and a reverence for gathering with His people. And I appreciate that. But I have to tell you something. I, I think there's a loss of the prominence of the house of God in this culture today. And that's what had happened when Haggai writes. And so I want to read a passage to you. I'll give you some context and background afterwards, but if you're physically able to do so, stand with me and follow along. Beginning chapter 1, Haggai, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the 26th month, in the second year of Darius the king. Father, would you enlighten our hearts? Would you convict? And would you take your word this morning and stir us, God, to love and devotion and service to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. Now, let me give you the setting of this passage. It relates to the exiles, the exiles who were returning to Jerusalem. And the first group, when they returned under Ezra and Zerubbabel, they came to it with a mission, and it was the house of God, to restore the house of God. They were allowed to leave Babylon. They had been in captivity for 70 years, and they come on a mission. The mission is to restore the prominence of the house of God. That's their task. And they get there, and they begin their, their service for God. They begin to, their work on uh, the house of God. And in time, however, they became lax. In time, they just uh, kind of uh, laid off of what they were doing. They uh, experienced some criticism and some harassment. It was an all-hands-on-deck kind of uh, a project. And so after a while, they just got tired, and they neglected the task of serving uh, God uh, via the house of, of God. And it went on for a period of around 13 years that they just, they just kind of gave up any kind of attention to the work of God through Uh, through his house. And so the prophet Haggai brings a message. His message is from God. He brings it to the people. And it's a message about renewing their commitment uh, to uh, work in, work on uh, the house of God. Now, you know, we can kind of identify with this passage, right? For over a year, um, we've been, we've been, uh, found it difficult to serve in the house of God. Uh, But now we're reigniting our work, and with that comes both the need and the biblical expectation to recommit ourselves in service to God. And today, uh, I want to share with you 
hey guys message. In fact, you might say, I'm going to preach hey guys sermon. Uh, he brought a sermon, a message from the Lord, so I'm going to preach hey guys sermon to you. And I want to show you three things from hey guys sermon that he proclaimed to the people. And you notice it said it was from the Lord, the Word of God, uh, spoken and proclaimed to them. What, is, what are the points? What are the, the, uh, the message ideas that he's bringing to them? Well, number one, Haggai proclaimed that we need a spiritual, or we have a spiritual message to obey. We have a spiritual message to obey. Verse 12, if you'll note again what it says there, it says that the people obeyed, uh, the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Haggai delivered the, the message of God uh, and the voice of the Lord and the people obeyed. Now, the message that Haggai delivered from God was actually found in verses 3 through 11. In 3 through 11, he tells Haggai says, this is what the Lord says. This is what you've been doing, and here's where you've been giving attention. He said, you're giving attention to your own houses. You're living in paneled houses, and you're, you're taking care of your own houses and your own lives, but you've neglected the, the work of the house of God. So that was his message to them. It was a stirring message. It was a convicting message. He delivers this message that they have, and they are expected of God to obey. Uh, to restore, to give attention to the work of God and restoring that work. In other words, it was to get functioning according to God's purpose, uh, the house of God, and the reason that he had created it. Haggai delivers this word from God. It's powerful, as I said. It brought conviction, and that conviction led to obedience. That's what verse 12 tells us. They had this message uh, to obey, and they did. Now, the setting was much different, but I would say to you this morning, the principles are very much the same. We today have a responsibility to keep the church of God carrying on the purpose of God. And we have this responsibility to be obedient because the work of God is essential. And for that to happen, it demands that the people of God must serve the church of God. They must fill positions and they must serve in ministry. And in, in our passage, there's some good news. And the good news is, first of all, these people got the message and they obeyed. They got the message. Now, you should note that they didn't just get the message. They got the message and then they acted on it. And there's a difference. A lot of people will receive a message but do nothing with it, right? In fact, James talks about that in the New Testament. He says about us that if we are not doers of the Word, but hearers only, we have deceived ourselves. He said we're like people who look at ourselves in the mirror and we see blemishes and we see things that need to be worked on, and, uh, and then, but we do nothing about it. We just walk off. And then he says when you walk away from the mirror, you forget what you had seen, so you do nothing about it. Well, listen, they didn't just hear a message and say, okay, that's the message. Somebody needs to do that. They didn't just hear the message. They did something with the message. And that's what makes the message powerful, isn't it? It is when the message impacts our life. And so God had sent Haggai to them and said, here's what the Lord says. And the people got it uh, because they trusted the Lord. They trusted the message that they had received. Their, their response to the message that they had received was actually evidence of their trust and faith in God, wasn't it? I read as I was working on this message, I read about how Arabian horses are trained. They're trained rigorously in the Middle Eastern deserts. 
And the horses have to learn to completely obey their masters. And so this obedience is tested. It is tested by deriving the, depriving the horses of water. And then eventually, after many days of not allowing these Arabian horses to have water, they, uh, they release them to a stream or to a pond area. And right as they're getting to the edge of the water, their trainer will blow a whistle. And uh, the, if the horses have learned to obey, in spite of this incredible craving for water, they will stop on the whistle, turn, and go back to the master. And then when they come back to the master, the master will reward them with all the water they want. What's going on? They're training them to trust the, the master. They're training them to, to hear the call of the master and to believe what the master has told them. Well, likewise, God knows what you and I need. See, that master isn't going to let them die of thirst, but he's trying to get them to trust him completely and explicitly. And God wants us to do the very same thing, that he is going to supply our needs, but he needs our response to be one of obedience even sometimes when we have cravings that, that draw us away from the master. But listen, because they obeyed, because they trusted him, they obeyed, they got the message. There's a second thing that happened. The people received the affirmation that God was with them in their service. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And here's what God said. I am with you. I'm with you. Here's the point. God does not ask you to serve him in your own strength. When they obeyed, he said, I'm going to be with you. He didn't say that until they obeyed. He says, now they've obeyed. They've responded to the message. Hey, guy, now tell them that part two is because you've obeyed, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to, I, I'm going to uh, cause what you do to prosper. And see, if you don't have him with you and you try to serve him, guess what you'll do? You'll burn out or you'll drop out because you can't do it on your own. And he never expects you to do it on your own. He expects you to begin with obedience. He, well, he expects you to begin with hearing and then obeying, and then hearing and obeying lead to power from him. And those who obey, he provides the Holy Spirit. I said a moment ago, you know, if you're you're not dead, you're not finished yet. We, we sing a song around here sometimes that says, if you're not dead, God's not done. And best I can tell, looking out over this audience this morning, most of you are not dead. So that means God's not done. God's not finished with you. God's plans for you are that specific. You're here because there's still the window of service that God created you for. And so Haggai is telling them to get back uh, to serving God. They had been serving themselves. And so I ask you this morning, are you obeying him in service? Are you finding service? Are you finding one? You say, well, pastor, I, I've got certain limitations. Do you think God doesn't know what your limitations are? He knows what your limitations are. Tell him, God, here's my limitations. How can you use me? Where can you use me? What can I do? There are all kinds of ways that you can be serving and serve God. The next thing that I want you to see from Haggai's sermon is it points to the fact that, that we have a spiritual master to fear. That's number two. We have a spiritual master to fear. Look at verse 12. 
So Haggai the prophet spoke the word of God to the people, and it says at the end of the verse, the people feared the Lord. Now, why did they fear the Lord? They feared the Lord because they realized that they had not been serving him, but they had been serving themselves. They got the message. Remember, they got it. I mean, it rocked them, and they said, okay, we get it. Thirteen years we've neglected the work of God and so we get the message. And then because they recognized what they hadn't been doing, they became afraid of the Lord. A fear is a great motivator, I will tell you. Fear is a great motivator. It's one of those things I think we've lost in the church today is the fear of the Lord. I don't mean to, that we have to live in fear. The Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear. That means against the enemy. But dear friend, you ought to have a fear of the Lord God Almighty. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews writes. There is a sense of fear that will will change our lives. They realized they hadn't been serving God. They realized they had been serving themselves, and they became afraid. And and the word fear here, uh, some translations mistranslate it. They just say, and awe fell upon the people, or respect. Now, sometimes the word for Fear communicates that idea, awe or reverence, that sort of thing. But did you know many times in the Scripture the word means to literally be afraid of God? And that's the idea here, that they suddenly became aware of themselves and of holy God and how they had neglected to serve Him, and they became afraid. That's the case in this passage. They were gripped by the fear of God. Because the message of God had brought conviction and it had renewed a desire for them to be right with God and to be obedient to Him. I don't know if you read my column last week. I wrote a column on what it means to fear God. And I wrote it because I think we're living in an age that that has lost any sense of the fear of God. And by the way, I mentioned a minute ago, the, the house of God has lost prominence in our age today. And I think that's partly because because there's been a loss of the real fear of God. And, um, and that includes, tragically, many American pulpits and people coming and going in and out of our churches. Dr. O.S. Hawkins has described the age in which we live as the no-fear culture. He says, we now have a couple of generations who know very little of the nature of God. And that's huge. That's huge because... Understanding the nature of God makes a difference between whether you accurately worship and serve God or whether you worship and serve a God of your own creation. He goes on, Dr. Hawkins does, to describe the fear of God as, and I quote, a sense of being afraid of offending a holy God in any way. We've lost that, haven't we? Commenting on the fear of God, Dr. R.T. Kimball writes this, he says, so many watered down the fear of God by quickly saying, now that doesn't mean to be afraid of God. Really? He goes on to say, it certainly does mean that. Otherwise, no one would begin to feel real respect or or reverence for God. When the Bible refers to people walking in the fear of the Lord, he writes, I believe it means that they were in fact scared to death. The fear of God is a no-nonsense, no-joke reality. It is very real when described in the Bible and is often intended to strike fear in us 
even shake us to our fingertips. It did the early church. You see, the fear of God is a great motivator, isn't it? And that's what uh, happened to these people. They heard the message of God, and they were suddenly motivated because of the message. They were motivated by the fear of God. If that's what God would say to us, it brought some sobriety to their hearts and minds about what they should be doing. And it caused three things to happen in them. First of all, the fear of God broke them. It broke their focus on themselves. They, they start thinking about themselves, and they started thinking about the house of God. The fear of God broke them. The second thing the fear of God did is it woke them. It woke them to the mission that they had neglected. It wasn't cultural wokeness. By the way, we're hearing that term. That's not what we're talking about. It wasn't cultural wokeness. It was a spiritual awakening. We, uh, we pray, you know, for revival. We pray every week here on Wednesdays. We pray uh, when we gather, we pray for revival, and we pray for repentance. Years ago, I changed it from just praying for revival. I changed it to praying for repentance because revival will happen as the uh, 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 response to repentance. When you repent, there will be revival. So we started praying for repentance in our nation, in our lives, in our churches. But I want to back up another step and say, I want to tell you something. You know what will produce repentance? The fear of God. The fear of God, and that's what happened here. The fear of God woke them up. It was a spiritual awakening. It was a revival. And then the fear of God provoked them. It not only broke them and woke them, it provoked them to recommit themselves to the task of God. The very service that they had neglected now was elevated again in their life. Much of the weakness in the body of Christ today is because we aren't much afraid of God anymore. We just aren't much afraid of God anymore. Living in fear of God doesn't negate, now listen, it doesn't negate living under the love of God. But it does, however, let me tell you what it does. It does keep us from confusing God as being passive to any disobedience on our part. Did you get that? Let me say that one more time. It, It doesn't negate living under the love of God. Thank God for His great love. Amen? So it doesn't negate that. We are living under the love of God. But what the fear of God does is it keeps us from confusing God as just being passive about disobedience. In other words, well, we live under the love and grace of God, and so even if I'm disobedient, it's not, disobedient, it's not a big deal to God because I'm under grace and I'm under, I'm under His love. It kind of reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be. They were saying this, well, you know, God is a God of grace, and we live under His grace, and we're so thankful for His grace and His love, and we are, amen? But they were abusing the grace of God. They're saying, because He's such a gracious God, we can just live and disobey and do whatever we want, and He'll just give more grace because He loves to give grace. And Paul said, may it never be. It's the strongest negative in the Greek language. May it never be. Never, never, never. So we can't confuse living under the grace uh, and love of God. We can't confuse that with God being passive about disobedience. And by the way, if you read the verses before the text that we actually read, you see that the same God who told them that he was with them, right? That was, that was an affirmation to them. I'm with you. The same God that told them that in verse 13, look at verse 11. He also said, I have called for a drought. 
All because they weren't afraid and all because they were not serving him obediently. He said, I call for a drought. When they got the message and they responded, he called off the drought. And he said, I'll be with you. A lack of fear of God will eventually lead, listen, to a lack of obedience to God. And a lack of obedience to God will eventually lead to direct consequences from God. That was the message if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn. That was the message that Haggai brought to them. But last, let me give you the last point in Haggai's sermon, and that is that we have a spiritual motive to serve. That's number three on your outline. We have a spiritual motive to serve. Verse 14, look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua. And he goes on and he talks about the, and he stirred up the high priest. And look at this. And he, the, the, he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Literally, they were motivated by God. Literally, in the Hebrew, he roused them to service. God roused them to service. Now, when it says he stirred up the Spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit, though the, there were, it was obvious that the Spirit of God was moving in this process. He's talking about that he stirred them inside. Their inner man, he, stirred, he roused them to service. They suddenly stepped up and said, we'll serve. And because the Lord was with them, they were motivated to serve and accomplish the plans of God. You know, you and I, we are so fortunate to live beyond the day of Pentecost. We are so fortunate. You and I are. We live after Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was the day where the Spirit of God fell on the people, wasn't it? You remember? And on, on that occasion, the Spirit of God came down and the people of God went out. And they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit because prior to that, Jesus had told them, you stay here in Jerusalem until you are endowed with power. And on Pentecost, the power fell. And suddenly this power that they needed to serve God, not in their own strength, but under the direction of the Spirit of God was suddenly theirs. It wasn't uh, enabling power. It wasn't seasons of the Spirit's anointing as we see in uh, the Old Testament when the Spirit would come uh, for a, a, a task or a response. Wait, we now live beyond Pentecost where the Spirit of God resides in us. We're fortunate. We don't have to say, God, would you come? God said, I've already come. Why don't you uh, uh, activate the power of the Spirit of God that I've already put in you through my Holy Spirit? We have the full-time residence of the Holy Spirit to stir us and empower us daily for the work and the service of God. Again, it's why Jesus told his followers, don't go anywhere until you are endowed with power. Jesus wasn't going to send his children out to do the work and service of ministry without his power. But when they received the Spirit, when they received, they were commanded and they were expected to serve the King of Kings. Uh, they were expected. It wasn't, here's the power, decide whether or not you want to tap into it. It was an expectation. By the way, it still is. Nothing's changed. It still is. Now, why were they stirred, these people in our text? Well, they were stirred, first of all, because of the message they believed. The stirring begins, I believe, with the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God. The stirring starts inside. You've done it. You've had it happen before to you. You've been listening to the Word, or you've been reading the Word, and something inside begins to stir in you. Listen, that's not accidental, and I want to tell you something. That's not the devil. 
The devil will never stir you up with the Word of God unless he's trying to deceive you by giving you some misbelief that we've been talking about and using a a half-cocked idea from Scripture. But not the truth. But God stirs us, and they were stirred. Because of the message they believed, God's Spirit spoke directly to the people and moved them to action, moved them to obey and to complete the work of God. And Haggai had given the people far more than just empty words. You know, y'all should, y'all should, y'all ought to be serving the house of God. He didn't say, you know, y'all ought to rethink that. He he gave them far more uh, than just than, than just kind of. Uh, empty words. His words had power. They had power because they were from God. They had the Spirit of God upon them, and they moved the people because of the source of those words. Given to the people at that specific time, they, they were stirred because the, of the message they believed. I'll tell you, they were stirred because of the fear they perceived as well, afraid of disobeying God as we just talked about. Listen, God loves you, but don't take him for granted and never, ever impose your agenda on him. Walking in the fear of the Lord certainly means to worship him with awe and reverence, but it also means to live in fear of displeasing him. Now listen, I'm not trying to create neurotic neurotic or paranoid believers this morning in what I'm talking about uh, and telling you to constantly be thinking about God is out to get you that God isn't out to get you but the fear of the Lord keeps me moving forward for the glory of God and that's why we need more of the fear of the Lord today but the fear of the Lord will keep you from taking God lightly. And it will keep you from not taking sin seriously. They were stirred because of the message they believed. They were stirred because of the fear they perceived. And listen, third, they were stirred because of the power they received. God empowering them. Haggai's words were not only true, they were also accompanied by the Spirit of God, the very presence of the Lord Himself. And so the people were not just emotionally charged. They weren't just emotionally energized. They were moved to obedience and action. The hallmark of true revival and reigniting is when we are moved by the power and the Spirit of God. And this is a perfect testimony to the Lord's empowering presence. There was no greater proof of God's presence. There and, there's, and there was no greater proof of true renewal than the simple fact that the people, verse 15, look at it, says, they began to work. The people began to work on the house of the Lord. In Yorkshire, England, during the early 1800s, two sons were born to a family named Taylor. The older one set out to make a name for himself by entering parliament and gaining public prestige. But the younger son chose to give his life to Christ and subsequently committed his life to serving God. He served him confidently, unconditionally, and wholeheartedly. And with that commitment, Hudson Taylor turned his face toward China and to obscurity. As a result... 
Though today he is known and honored on just about every continent on the planet as a faithful missionary and the founder of the China Inland Mission, which today goes by the name Overseas Missionary Fellowship. He's known for that. Oh, yeah, and the other son. What, what about the other son that well, served in parliament and had uh, nothing wrong with and had great uh, prestige in the social community? What, what about him? Well, there's no lasting monument to him. In fact, when you look in the, uh, an encyclopedia to see what the other son has done, you'll find these words, the brother of Hudson Taylor. Friend, listen to me. If you want to succeed in life, commit your life in service to the Lord God Almighty. Our commitment in the service of the Lord is very important in building the body of Christ. And so I want to challenge you today, in the months to come, to commit yourself and your life in the ministry of serving God through the church of God. Confidently, wholeheartedly, absolutely trusting for His glory and His alone. When I was working on the message this past week, Psalm 100 just kept coming to my mind. Psalm 100, I bet you know it, don't you? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Serve the Lord with gladness. We are His sheep we belong to Him. Let's give our all. Let's give our best for Him.